Well, good morning. Good to be together again in God's presence. Um, and I want you to behold with me, as John says in his first letter, behold what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. For six weeks now, we have been studying together, learning together about the love of God and its effects in our lives, right? We've been looking at several different passages of Scripture. This is more of a thematic series. We're not working, you know, verse by verse or chapter by chapter through a particular book of the Bible, but we're looking at a a variety of different references that speak to us on a common theme, and that theme being the love of God for His people. So we've talked about the fact that God's love was embodied in Jesus Christ, who stepped down from heaven to become one of us, and then who willingly and sacrificially went to the cross to die for us. God loves us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, that we who believe in him should have eternal life. That's where it all begins, right? With the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. As a result of those things, we've experienced the love of God and its effects in our lives in a multitude of other ways. So this is what we've been studying together, learning about together, right? God loves his people so much that he forgives our sins. He grants us grace even when we don't deserve it. God loves us so much that he conquers death for us and offers us abundant and eternal life instead of death. God loves us so much that he promises and offers to refresh the weary by carrying our burdens with us. He offers us refreshment because he loves us. God loves us so much that he heals the sick and the broken and delivers the oppressed. He offers us healing as an experience and an expression of his love for us. God loves us so much that he transforms lives. We talked about this last Sunday, the power of transformation and how by the presence of the Spirit of God at work within each one of us, we are continually being transformed into the likeness of Jesus more and more. All of these things... God does for us and offers to us as expressions of his great love for us. And they come to us as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, our trust that he's the embodiment of God's love. But there's more. We've got two weeks left to press in on this theme before we turn our attention to something else. And so this morning, I want to focus with you on another dimension another effect of God's love at work in our lives, I want you to think with me about the fact that God's love makes all things new. God's love makes all things new. In short, what I'm referring to is both a present and a future reality. This has to do, the making of all things new, this has to do with the promised return of Jesus the second coming, as we often refer to it, and the recreation of heaven and earth, which is meant to give us great hope for the future, right? 
Christian hope is a gift from God that comes to us as an expression of his love. It's because he loves us that he wants to give us hope for the future. Because he loves us, he has great things in store for us. And he promises to make all things new. That's great news for us to ponder. So this is about God setting things right. This is about God making everything new again, which is a process that's already begun with the the first coming of Christ, but a process that won't be completed and fulfilled until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So let's think about this. What does it mean for God to make all things new? That's the phrase that that we hear John speaking of in Revelation 21, the one that jumps off the page and captures the heart of God for each one of us. Let me begin this morning with an illustration just to get you thinking uh, about what this phrase means for us. Making things new. What comes to mind for me as I ponder this is uh, several little memories And I'll I'll give you the general idea first and then some specific examples. If you're a parent and you had young children at one time, perhaps you can think of an experience where um, they desperately wanted some particular toy or possession or or doll, whatever the case, some whatever thingamajig that they really, really wanted. And as a parent, you were pleased to buy it for them, to give it to them as a gift and as an expression of your love for them. So they would play with it. They would carry it around. Wherever they went, it would become dear to them. They would sneak it in their school backpack or bring it with them on car rides or vacations or take it to soccer games or dance rehearsals. And sooner or later, inevitably, that precious item, whatever it may have been, would break. Something about it would cease to function, and that toy or precious possession would no longer be what it once was. Now, most parents, when that happens, many anyway, would try to console the child by offering a new one. Have you ever done this, parents? Can you think of of an example? And yet, many children, in the throes of their anguish and their loss, might answer on such an occasion, I don't want a different one. I want this one fixed. Have you ever heard those words before? One example of this uh, that comes to mind in in our own experience of parenting is... um, Kyria's precious doll named Rachel. And uh, she used to have this beloved doll named Rachel. She bought it when she was about five years old at a garage sale. And um, I, I per, perhaps it was so dear to her because she I, you know, might have paid her own money for it and picked it out herself uh, at a garage sale. And the ironic thing about this particular doll is that when she bought it, it was already well used. In fact, it was very well used. And um, most everyone else thought that it was painfully ugly. But Kyria loved her doll, Rachel. That doll was precious to her. And she took it everywhere. It was her constant companion. So 
um, despite the matted hair and the missing hair, um, the, the nasty hair, that doll was Kiria's beloved possession. So on one of our annual family vacations, uh, we loaded back into the car after a night's stay at a hotel somewhere, got off on the road, and then we suddenly came to the painful realization that Rachel had been left behind. Are you feeling the empathy here? <laughs> Rachel was left behind at the hotel. And what are we good parents to do but to, to try to console our daughter in her moment of loss? And so, of course, um, I can't remember the precise details, but I'm imagining that we, we probably tried to just encourage her and say, hey, well, we can get a new one, right? We can, we can buy you a new doll. It's not that big a deal. But Kiria didn't want a new doll. She wanted Rachel back. So we got all the way home to Michigan, and we contacted the hotel, and wouldn't you know, sure enough, they found Rachel. And by some providence of God, they hadn't thrown her away. So we asked them if they would mail Rachel back to us again, and they did. They, did. they mailed Rachel back home to Michigan, and Kyria was, you know, restored to her beloved doll. And, uh, um, and then the really funny part of the story is that um, several years later, after this had all happened, um, Bethann had the brilliant idea one Christmas that maybe we could just get new hair for Rachel. And so we removed all of her old hair, and we bought her new hair and figured out somehow to attach it to her head, and Rachel was made new. What a beautiful illustration. So, has it occurred to you, has it occurred to you that this life we live is filled with brokenness, with things that are just nasty, right? Brokenness is all around us. It's pervasive. It surrounds us. In fact, it's, unfortunately, it's not just around us. It's actually within us. We've all experienced it. We've all encountered it. We've all confronted it. And we're all tired of it. At least I am, aren't you? What are we to do with the brokenness of life and how it confronts us? Is it even possible that we could hope that all things would be made new again? There's a sickness in us, something that's infected us with selfishness and greed and pride and lust. There's something that, that keeps tipping even the best of our human systems and structures toward injustice and oppression and ineffectiveness. The world is full of brokenness, and we are full of brokenness. Now, the world, of course, has no vocabulary for this anymore. Like, humanism keeps trying to tell us that we can overcome it, that we can get better, that we can do it right, that we can, you know, somehow that, that um, politics and um, relationships and all of these things can, can be perfected if we just try a little harder. That's the mindset of humanness, humanism, that we can overcome our weaknesses and failures and that we can get better 
We can make it better. But that's not the language that the Bible uses to talk about the human predicament that we're in. The language the Bible uses, though it's not popular anymore, it's rather passe, it's certainly not politically correct, but the language the Bible uses is the language of sin and evil, right? Brokenness in our lives and in the world around us is a result of sin and evil. It's that simple. That's the best explanation, and it is the biblical explanation for all the brokenness that we've encountered. Evil holds the world in its grip because sin has infected the human heart. And all we want to know is, if indeed there is a God in heaven, what's he going to do about all that brokenness? What's he going to do with it? How's he going to fix it? When's he going to fix it? Can he really fix it? And the resounding answer of Scripture is yes. Yes and amen. Yes, he can, and yes, he will fix it. So let's begin here with the basic answer to this question from the incredible revelation that God gave to the Apostle John. The whole book is named Revelations, but of all the revelations in Revelations, I think this is one of the most significant, one of the most powerful, one of the most insightful, because it gives us a picture of what is to come. It's a vision from heaven of the new creation that lies before us. And here's the the bottom line, right? The the first and, and probably most important takeaway from this passage of Scripture is that out of his great love for us, God gives us hope that he will make all things new. He will. We don't have to wonder if it might happen. He will. He promises to do this. Here are the words that John uses that I'd like you to key in on with me in verse 5. Revelation 21, verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, to understand this statement in its broader context, I think, is important to us as well, right? Because how are we to interpret that phrase? What does it mean? What's what's God talking about? I am making everything new. When? How? What should we expect it to look like? Well, as you begin to broaden out and look at the verses both before and after verse 5, you get a bigger picture of what, what the context of this promise is and what it is that God's speaking to John about and showing him a vision of. Right, Really, um, to use a nice 10-cent theological word for you, this this passage and others like it that speak about the end times are uh, fit within a category that's called eschatology. Eschatology, the study of the end times. So it's about what God plans to do just before and after Jesus returns to the earth. And that, of course, is the cornerstone of the end times that we believe in as followers of Jesus Christ, that he didn't just come once, he's coming back again. And when he comes, 
he will make all things right and new again. So eschatology is about the end of this life as we know it and the recreation of life in a new and better form. Maybe it's helpful uh, as you think about this with me for a moment to understand what our hope as Christians is not. Let me just clarify with one important distinction here. I want you to understand that Christian hope is not evacuation. This is a, a common misunderstanding that many Christians, I think, have had over the years. Our Christian hope is not evacuation from the broken world that we live in. And sometimes we forget this because of the way that we talk about heaven and think about heaven. Heaven, of course, is a wonderful place where we find rest in the presence of God. But even heaven, for the early Christians, was not necessarily the focus of their Christian hope. Heaven is real, but it's not the main point. New Testament scholar and early Christian historian N.T. Wright has put it this way quite famously. He says, heaven's important, but it's not the end of the world, which is a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, really, heaven is the recreation of this earth, the making of all things new again. So imagine for a moment that you have a child, just to give you another illustration to latch on to here, and that child is being bullied on the playground at school. Imagine that your child says to the bully, just you wait, my mom or dad is coming, and when they come, you're going to be sorry. So then you arrive at the playground, and your child comes running to you and tells you about the bully and the encounter that they've had, the difficulty they've had, and the bully's still there. Can you imagine yourself in that situation saying, oh, it's okay, sweetheart, let's just, let's just leave and I'll go buy you some ice cream to make you feel better? No. Any good parent is going to confront the bully. Any good parent is going to want to bring justice to that situation. Any good parent is going to want to protect whatever other kids might be subject to the bully. In that moment, you're going to want to stand up for what's right. You're going to want to try to make it right with your child. right? So as fabulous as the ice cream offer is, and as unlikely as any child is to turn that offer down, ice cream's not really what they're after in that moment. What they really want is justice. They want you to stand up for them. They want you to make it right. They want you to confront the bully. And I offer you that as an illustration because I think that's a great example and a great description of what we should expect God to do for us. He is coming to confront the bully. He is coming to bring justice. He is coming to make everything right again. So when it comes to eschatology, this is what we really hope for. This is what Paul's getting at, what John's driving at in Revelation, what Paul's getting at, what Jesus spoke of himself. In fact, uh, I learned maybe a year or so ago at a conference I attended, uh, I hear hearing Mike Bickle talk about this, that there, did you know there are over 150 chapters of Scripture that are descriptive of the end times and the second coming? That's amazing. 
That's a lot of information. That's a lot of material. And here's an example in addition to, to Revelation 21. 1 Corinthians 15, this is the Apostle Paul. Here's what Paul had to say about God confronting the bully and bringing justice. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, that is Christ, um, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the power and authority of Jesus. He's coming to destroy everything that stands against him. That's God dealing with the bully who's ultimately responsible for all the brokenness in our lives and in our world. And then Paul goes on a little later in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe the the new life that we will be given. It's the resurrection life that Jesus has already been given. And so he explains in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 57, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must be put, must must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? You see, what Paul's describing is the new creation, the new heavenly body that each one of us will receive at the resurrection. And that's just one aspect, right? That's the personal dimension of how we will be made new when Jesus returns. But beyond that, right, not only are each one of us made new, the whole creation is made new. The heavens and the earth. So again, in the words of John, listen to this this declaration from the, the heart and the mind of John who saw this in the Spirit. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What's John saying? Listen closely. Pay close attention. He's saying Jesus is going to swallow up death in victory. He's saying Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. Jesus is going to make the heavens and the earth new again. God himself will come down to dwell among his people and all things will be made new and right. So this is not just about us getting out of here and escaping 
to go somewhere else. Our hope is fixed on nothing less than the imminent reality that that God is coming here to restore and to remake the world and to fill it with his presence. Making all things new is God's supreme act of love for the redemption of all those who love him. And only then will this broken creation become what it was meant to be in the first place. A place where God's love for us and our love for him is perfectly manifested. So the great end that we're looking for is a kind of resurrection day for all of heaven and earth. It started with Jesus' resurrection, and it will continue with our resurrection. But beyond our own personal resurrection, what we're really hoping for, what we're really looking forward to, the promise that we're hoping in is the promise of a resurrected heaven and earth. That's amazing. He will raise us up in newness of life, and all of creation with us will be made new. Now, let me close with one practical question for you. How is it that we can allow this vision of hope to fill our minds a little bit more consistently? I don't know about you, but I think, uh, for me, certainly, the challenge is distraction, right? We just, we get so busy with the demands of life, the responsibilities of life from day to day, this, that, and the other thing that we're committed to, we're busy. And we're often distracted from thinking about this reality that we've been promised. What can we do to focus, to refocus, and to remember what God has promised us? And how can the memory of that promise, reflection upon it, focus upon it, how can that help us from day to day? Well, here's what I want you to understand. We're going to look now, we're going to go back a little bit and just look at the first couple verses of John's vision in Revelation 21, because you know what they're about? I think this will help you if you think about this. They're about a wedding. They're about a wedding. John's vision of the bride of Christ helps us to realize and experience the kind of relationship that God desires and intends to have with us. And so all of history is moving toward the wedding, the great wedding of Christ and his bride. Revelation 21, 2 and 3, the very beginning verses of of John's vision. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. What's John describing? He's describing a wedding. Now, stop and think about this for a minute, right? Do you, who, how many of you can remember the excitement and the anticipation of planning your own wedding, right? I hope there's a number of hands out there. It's a big deal, right? Kyria, are you thinking about this at all? 
Of course, right? I mean, I can remember, it was like, you know, 27 years ago now, but I can remember the feelings, the intensity of the feelings as that day approached. I can remember all the, you know, the details and the logistics of things that we had to work on and um, the anticipation, the excitement. In fact, um, I would say that probably the, the sense of anticipation that we experience as we approach our wedding day is perhaps the greatest thing that, that we look forward to in life with the possible exception of the birth of a child, right? And it stands out for each of us in our memory as one of, if not the greatest day of our lives. That's how we think about the importance of marriage and weddings. Now, obviously, that whole concept has come under attack, right? And the brokenness of the world has, you know, like marriages and and families are not immune from the brokenness of the world. And so many people have encountered that and, and struggled you know, with, with the brokenness of their marriage relationship. But even in spite of that, I suggest to you that, that the feelings of anticipation and the excitement that you had about your wedding before it took place are memorable and important, right? And now think about that in the context of what John's describing, why is God giving us this image in particular? Why would God use this image and these words to tell us about what to expect and what to look forward to at the end of time? Because it holds a place in our hearts, right? Because we can all relate to it. Because we can, we've all, you know, if you've been married, you've been there. You know how exciting this is, how important this is. You have that, you've, you've been through that sense of anticipation, and you know how for the, you know, whatever it was, six months, nine months, 12 months leading up to the day, your focus was almost entirely on that reality. I think God wants us to think about the return of Jesus in that way. That's the significance of this image. And the words, the vision that John is offering us. Now, maybe the language seems a little bit obscure, hard to grasp, right? He's talking about the holy city, the new Jerusalem. What's that? How, how, and how are we part of that? Well, the idea here is that all of us who are in Christ are part of the people of God, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. We are. The Bible says in many different places, the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. So this is a common biblical image that's not just referenced here in Revelation 21, but in several other places that help us to understand the significance of the image and the idea behind it. The point is that when Jesus returns to this earth, consider how amazing it is that this coming experience is actually described by God as a wedding. A wedding. I think, with this language that God's saying to us, I want you to think of the day and look forward to the day when my people will become my bride. And all things on that day will be made new and right. That will be the most glorious day in human history. 
even beyond the day of Jesus' birth, even beyond the day of Jesus' crucifixion, even beyond the day of Jesus' resurrection, the day of his return will be the most glorious day in human history. Consider that. Anticipate it. Look forward to it. Focus on it. Fix your hope on it. God says, I want you, my beloved, to know that I love you so much that I'm coming to be with you forever. I'm coming to be with you forever. I often reflect on this in light of some some teaching I've heard from a Jewish historian and great Bible teacher named Ray Vanderlaan. And I've heard Ray on several occasions talk about the Jewish tradition of marriage, where after they became betrothed, uh, the man in this relationship would say to the woman, I am going to prepare a place for you at my father's house. Do you recognize that language? Jesus said those very words the night before he went to the cross. And I don't know if it's ever occurred to you or if you've ever heard this before, but he was quoting from what was commonly said by a Jewish young man to his beloved. I am going to prepare a place for you. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Those were the words that a young Jewish man would speak to a young Jewish woman, and then he would go off to his home, to his his parents' home, to prepare a place for the young couple to live together after they were married. And what's really amazing about this is that the bride wouldn't know exactly when he was going to come back. She just had to be ready. He would come back when he was ready. When, he was, when everything was prepared and the time was just right, he would return for his bride and bring her home and begin their new life together. Friends, what I'm telling you is that that is the image that Scripture gives us of what God is up to. And if that doesn't give you hope for the future, nothing can. Nothing can. This is the heart of God for us. This is the love of God for us. He is absolutely committed to coming back for us, his beloved, and to making all things new and right so that we can enjoy life with him forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this incredible image and how you've used it in Scripture, Lord, to reveal to us your heart and your love.